This morning's Old Testament reading is from the book of Job, and when we hear that, oh, the book of Job, we, we think of, about a, a tale of woe, and much of it indeed is, um, but uh, the silver lining exists in Job, uh, both at the end, if you read it all the way through, and, and along the journey, there are these gems, including this from the 19th chapter, beginning at verse 23 and continuing through verse 27, a passage that, that has echoes in the New Testament and that we often hear read at the graveside, but we don't need to reserve its use simply for funerals, for it is such an encouraging message. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. Oh, that my words were written. Oh, that they were inscribed in a book, that they were engraved on a rock with an iron pen and led forever. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. Our New Testament reading This morning is from the book of Romans in the sixth chapter, beginning of verse 15 and continuing through verse 18. Again, I invite you to listen for a word from the Lord as it is there written. What then? Should we sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know? that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God that you, having once been slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart, to the form of teaching to which you were entrusted, and that you, having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Here ends this reading from God's holy word. In this, his letter to the Romans, Paul, the former Pharisee, writes a fair bit about the law of Moses and how the people of God had been called to live before and now after the coming of Jesus, the Messiah. It was Jesus himself who proclaimed that he had come not to abolish the law, but rather to fulfill the law. If then the law remained, what role did it play? For the Hebrew people. With the new covenant established by Jesus, the role of faith was once again preeminent. And I say once again because prior to the commandments having been handed down at Mount Sinai, Father Abraham 
had entered into covenant with God through a faith that was reckoned unto him as righteousness well before the time of Moses. Generations upon generations upon generations later, those who, like Paul, believed in, had faith in Jesus, were heirs of this new covenant sealed in his divine blood. Their allegiance, however, remained to the same God as Abraham and Moses. It was in that God's bodily incarnation that he revealed most clearly to his people how they were to live in accordance with his holy and perfect will. Wrestling with this dawning realization of the complexities and nuances of rethinking and reordering one's life in light of this new understanding of God's nature and desire, Paul puts his arguments in writing. And here he begins with a rhetorical question. Are there no longer incentives for people not to sin? After all, if the days of the laws of Moses have been accomplished, aren't we then free? Free to do under the law of grace whatever it is we wish without regards to consequence? Truth be told, that very same question is equally as valid today as it was in Paul's time. Having put this thought out there, however, the apostle immediately proposes a faithful response, beginning with, by no means. We do not serve the law, he reasons, but the people of God continue to serve the giver of the law. Throughout Jesus' teaching and preaching, he both told the people and he showed the people what it meant to serve this God. And this is precisely what Paul argues the Lord continues to desire from his people, even to this day, their allegiance and their service. Throughout this letter to the Romans and in his other correspondence as well, Paul makes a big deal out of God's grace. The creator of the universe cares deeply for his creation. He is under no obligation, of course, to do so, but this demonstrates to us something of his nature as shown through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. The grace of God is an important facet of his being. Those are, who are in service to this God are not only invited to take note of God's grace, but also to be imitators of that grace in our own lives. Scripture reminds us of this obligation because, as we talked about in this morning's Sunday school lesson, we are not our own. We were made by God we belong to God. God has chosen us. The reality of that claim has been evidenced in the lives of those calling themselves Christian from Paul's time all the way through to our own. A, a week ago now, during that Sunday school hour, John Handy 
shared with us some fascinating glimpses into the faith lives of our spiritual ancestors here at Rehoboth. These came in the form of a compilation of testimonies from a number of members of this congregation from a previous generation. Nearly 70 years ago, these people participated in a program known as the Lord's Acre. It had originated 30 years prior to that in a farming community, roughly an hour's drive from where we used to serve in southwest Georgia. The program involved church folks setting aside a percentage of their crops or livestock for the church. In our 10 years here at Rehoboth, my family and I have been the grateful recipients of many an ad hoc offering from your flocks and fields, and we have appreciated each and every one of them. But the Lord's Acre was a much more organized, structured, and large-scale capital campaign for the church, not just the minister. It coincided with the trustees' determination that some rather extensive and potentially expensive work ought to be done on the facilities here at Rehoboth. As the wooden tablet out here in our narthex attests, the proceeds from that Lord's Acre program were put to very good use as intended by the trustees. As, if not more important than the money that was raised in that effort, was the crop of insights that was harvested among those who participated in it. Many of them expressed a, a new or a renewed sense of their Christian calling and vocation, of being good and faithful servants. Hearing the words that were recorded for the benefit of this congregation in 1954, one can sense some of the humility and reverence that came as fruit from this endeavor. There were several of these testimonies that were part of the compilation given to the members back then. And while I won't take the time to read them all to you this morning, the following is an excerpt from the remarks made by Paul Barnes. They say that I was the first member of our beloved church to lay aside a Lord's Acre. He sounds a bit like a Paul. He then went on to say this, though, I started it because I realized that I was not giving a tenth of my earnings to the Lord. If I had been a tenant farmer, well, I would have given the owner a third of the earnings of my farm. I am considered by men to own my farm. But looking beneath the surface of the matter, I realized that as long as I am on the earth, I will be a tenant on a small part of the Lord's farm. I felt that I owed him much more than I could ever pay by adopting a plan of setting aside one field of the farm for him. I hoped to be able to pay some interest on his loan, even if I could not pay the principal. What a marvelous metaphor I thought this was for understanding the way that we are all called to live 
in relationship with God. We know most assuredly that we can never pay the debt that we owe to him. We can never be good enough. We can never work hard enough. We can never give enough to pay back what we owe. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, as we do every week in this service, we pray that our debts will be forgiven. And we do so with the Christian hope that indeed they will. That was on account of the price that Jesus paid for us. The ledger book is clear then. So, where do we go from there? That's the same question the Apostle Paul is addressing at this point in Romans. And as Paul Barnes reminds us, our life is now full of interest. It's not about balancing the scales, which would be an exercise in sheer futility, but rather it is a life of service rendered in appreciation for the gift of Jesus and the ongoing gifts of grace that he bestows on us all. Part of the interest which we are invited to offer back to God was in the Lord's Acre program and in our ongoing invitation to tithe, given in the form of currency. The crops or livestock were sold and the proceeds were then donated to this church. But as Mr. Barnes observed, it shouldn't stop there. It all belongs to God. So whether it's the harvest of the fields or the critters that graze on it, or whether it's those who tend and shepherd them, Christians know that, appearances aside, it's all God's, not ours. Yes, this pertains to one's purse, but it also pertains to the rest of one's life as well. And maybe that is in part why the way of Jesus turned out to be kind of a hard sell to many Hebrews of Paul's day. Living under the law, they had had for themselves a sort of a checklist. They knew exactly what was permissible and what was disallowed. Under this law of grace that Paul preached of, all aspects of one's life are intended to be dedicated to God. All days, all hours, all minutes are holy and sacred and are acts of expression of our gratitude for the unmerited grace that we have and continue to receive. There isn't anything that we can get away with. Not only what we have, but what we do and what we say are invited to be gifts to our Maker. We've each been endowed with unique talents and spiritual gifts so that we may make the finest offering possible. These are the interest on grace. In his letter to the Romans, Paul uses the phrase slaves of righteousness to describe himself and the others who would follow Jesus. He says that this is a good thing since previously those had been slaves to sin. In other places and in other translations of Scripture, his phrase is recorded as servant of righteousness. 
That is, I believe, the way Paul Barnes and his contemporaries, who literally built or rebuilt this church, understood their relationship with God. His servants of righteousness, both by grace and of grace, as they responded gratefully, graciously, and cheerfully to what they knew had been done for them. This is also the way I understand I am called to be about living in light of the revelation of God's word in scripture and incarnate, in righteousness, by grace, with grace. The great creator of the universe, the holy triune God, our maker, has shown an ongoing interest in life. We, his creatures, his cherished beings, his stewards of the creation, are invited and encouraged also to have such an interest in life, in a life that is no longer led in accord with sin, in a life that is no longer led in accord with a legalistic interpretation, in a life that honors God and loves God and others the way that we have been loved by him in a gifted, precious life, a life that is both abundant and eternal. And for that, we may truly say, thanks be to God and amen.